You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. So if you think of the term sportswear, what do you think of? What would you say the history of that is? Did it just like evolve from athletes? What do you think of? Ooh, that's a good question. Like, I'm sure it was kind of born from necessity, I would think, as you start getting more and more organized sports and athletics, whether it's like team sports or individual stuff or Olympic kind of stuff, like just kind of born out of necessity. But, you know, I think probably people started thinking about specific things for improving their athletic performance probably maybe 150 years ago, something like that. Yeah. Well, I think you're mixing activewear and sportswear, mm. which is the interesting point. Activewear is what athletes wear. Sportswear is a byproduct of that, which was actually invented by spectators standing on the side of cold fields, dating back all the way to the 1930s. And it was just something to keep you warm while you watch your team play a sport in their active wear. And it's actually become like a very homegrown American look. And it's influenced Paris, Amsterdam, and a lot of other fashion hubs in the world. But dates back all the way to 1930s. And even today, sportswear has become such a big mega billion dollar industry, right? It's just massive. Yeah. But it's really interesting, the difference between sportswear and activewear. And I think we use that interchangeably. But yeah, we're going to be talking a lot more about that in today's episode. But before we do, how are you guys doing? How is the children's household coping with online schooling? You guys went back to school, didn't you? Yes. Yes, we did. Nice. Yeah. So very exciting for the kids. So far, it's been pretty good. It's a little hectic. The schedule is kind of crazy because we have different age groups. And so we have four times we have to go to the school in a single day. Oh, man. That's crazy. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit hectic. And then coordinating schedules between wow. my wife and I, and it is nuts. But- They must be loving it, right? The kids are so ecstatic to be back in school and they're just so much more- excited about things. Like yesterday they came home from school and we didn't have to ask them. They just came home, pulled their homework out, got working on it. Like they're just in such a better mood because they get to have a little bit of normal life. Even though they're masked up the whole time and there's all these protocols and it's like half the amount of kids in their class, it's still just a better experience for them. Yeah. A really good friend of mine, Fabio, he's little boy is in kindergarten as well. He's five. And I saw a picture of him yesterday of a little drawing that he made and they had to like complete the sentence. And it's like, my hope and dream for kindergarten is to, and then dot, dot, dot. And then the little kids have to write something. And he wrote, my hope and dream for kindergarten is to go to school. <laughs> it's really oh, it's so man. sad. Oh. It's so sad. Oh. And it's just so telling with our times right now. But yeah, it's crazy times, right? It is. And it's sad because you have to take it seriously. There's nothing else you can do. And gosh, it's just hard. Yeah. Well, let's get started. So today's episode is a lighthearted story, which I think that most people don't know the history of. It's a really interesting one and, and it will make everybody feel happier through the pandemic. And being locked at home. Nice. Yes. <laughs> so let's get cracking. So we're going to be talking about a active and sportswear company. 
1990, in Rochester, New York, three brothers saw an opportunity. Modern sport teams were becoming more and more popular, but their uniforms, as we know it today, were lagging behind. So very often, uniforms were improvised or made up from what the players needed to wear. But these brothers, they were called the Fine Bloom Brothers, saw an opportunity to create a very high-quality sportswear or activewear that both looked good and served the needs of the athletes. And they called this company the Knickerbocker Knitting Company. That's a mouthful. <laughs> no, they landed on that, especially today, because this is like the 1920s. But when you hear like Knickerbocker, you think of something different, right? Yes, either old-timey underwear or the New York Knicks basketball exactly. team. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in the record winter of the 1920s, they first marketed their high-quality sweatshirts and sweatpants, allowing athletes to compete with freedom of motion that they needed while still staying warm enough to play outside. And teams started to take notice. And in 1926, the fledging company formed their first partnership. They provided school uniforms to the Wentworth Military Academy, the first of what would be many sport teams supported by their brand. And so in the early 1930s, they start to undergo a change. The Knickerbocker Knitting Company became Champion Knitting Mills, Inc., mm. the company we know today as Champion. Nice. And that same year, they formed a partnership that would launch the company into sports history. In 1934, Champion became the official apparel provider for the University of Michigan sports teams, particularly the football team, and the age of collegiate athletic apparel had begun. As Michigan's coaches talked and word spread of their brand's durability and comfort, the partnership created one of the most iconic items of clothing in modern history. When champion designers looking for added protection against the Michigan cold attached a hood to their mm. already popular sweatshirts and created the garment we know today as the hoodie. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's surprising to me that that started with football. I never would have associated yeah. hoodies with football. Yeah. You know, you're wearing a helmet and it seems like it would kind of like get in the way. But I guess back then things were just different. They didn't have the big metal helmets that we have today. Exactly. The helmets were different, right? They were like softer and, and not as bulky. Leather. They didn't have any <laughs> microphones and speakers. And Did they speak to each other? Only very rarely they'll do something for the media, like a, a mic or something. Okay. Yeah, they didn't have the modern technology. I thought that the coach were telling the guy throwing the ball where to throw it. Mm, no, they usually send the signals in from the sidelines. All right, let, let's get back to Champion. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. My bad. I just couldn't resist. So Champion pioneers the idea of clothing that can stand up to repeated use in competition mm -hmm. and repeated washing, which was a big deal because the quality of the materials at that time was a problem. They'd fall apart when they would wash them. And so Champion creates athletic wear that provides the qualities that these athletes need to really perform and it was really the invention of purpose-made athletic apparel. Mm -hmm. So some of Champion's other early innovations include the reverse weave sweatshirt with its iconic side panels and cuffs. Yeah, and that was a big deal, right? From the research that I read, that was one of the major stepping stones that started solidifying their lead within the category. Because up until this point, 
the team managers had to be very careful. This is crazy. They had to be careful of how often and how they washed their team's uniforms because they would literally fall apart. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. But anyway, so with the reversed weave sweatshirt patent that they came up with, the managers could wash the uniforms as much as they want and basically guarantee that the team would have a clean uniform. That was a really big deal back then. Nice. Crazy. I would imagine it would save a lot of money too. Like if you have to buy a new uniform so that you have a clean uniform for every game. Yeah. That's a big savings. Just something we take for granted. The fact that we can wash our clothes daily. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So in the 1940s, champion products were adopted by the U.S. Military Academy to be used during training exercises and PE classes. And in the 1950s, champion introduced modern PE uniforms to help address low fitness levels in American children. And the uniforms would essentially become the standard for decades to come. The product line was of such high quality that it was the first to be certified by the one and only American Institute of Laundry. (laughs) I had no idea that's a thing, but... (laughs) (laughs) Of course it's a thing. What are you talking about? (laughs) No, that is cool. In the 50s, that was a big thing. And that was a stamp of approval and a stamp of quality. Yes. So Champions doing very well because of this quality innovation that they came up with. But the best is yet to come. Yeah. So let's like enter the, let's call it the golden age from the 1960s to the 1990s. In 1956, Champion officially adopted their new C logo. The C logo became iconic, but so did the positioning of the logo. It's always on the left sleeve. In the 1960s, the logo caught the attention of the NCAA. And in the 1960s, Champion signed a long-term license agreement with them. In 1968, Champion transformed the women's athletic market. They introduced stylish mix and match PE uniforms. Champion continued to pioneer styles, but also fabrics such as the breathable material and reversible shirts. In 1967, they introduced the nylon mesh jersey designed specifically to meet the needs of football players suffering from heat exhaustion. So they were like super innovative. And this is interesting because we just yesterday talked about how marketing writes itself when you've got a really good product. And this is exactly (laughs) what's happening over here. In the 1970s, they solidified their place as the most important sports apparel brand. And in the early 1970s, they became the official outfitter of the National Football League, the NFL. Their partnership with professional sport leagues made them famous for the rest of the century. Beloved athletes could see wearing Champion's signature logo on TV and many households, and Champion continue to pioneer athletic apparel for women, including the sports bra. So they've invented the hoodie and they invented the sports bra. Fun facts. Wow. Yeah, they've just done a a ton of innovation. And this is just the 70s and 80s. The best is yet to come. Wow. Yeah. So in the 80s, growth and acquisition continues. So from... 1985 to 1988, Champion experiences its biggest growth yet, doubling profits in just a few years. And in 1989, Champion was acquired by Sarah Lee Corporation. In the 90s, Champion became the official outfitter for all 27 NBA teams. Whoa, that's huge. I can totally remember growing up, grew up a Utah Jazz fan watched the dream team play and the second dream team. And, you know, I remember very vividly seeing those logos on the uniforms when I played 
football in high school, we had Russell Athletic, and we always wished that we had champion because Russell was kind of like considered this like lower tier uniform provider. And we'd play other teams that might have champion and we'd just be so jealous, you know, because our department couldn't afford it. You had active wear envy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this deal with the NBA, more than anything else, really just catapulted champion to the top. The champion name and logo were used for all NBA merchandise, some of the most profitable sports merchandise in the world, especially at that time, the NBA was just leading because of primarily Michael Jordan and his Mm -hmm. influence on just the world in general. And in 1992, Champion designed the uniforms for the U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, known as the Dream Team, including some of the most memorable names in the history of the NBA, names like Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Clyde Drexler, Patrick Ewing. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Magic Johnson, Carl Malone, Michael Jordan. We, We all remember everybody. But Champion then begins to branch out even beyond traditional team sports, kind of dovetailing off of that success. And in the 90s, Champion was also seen in film, skate parks, and the hip-hop scene. Of course, when you see your favorite athletes wearing merchandise from a particular brand, everybody wants to wear merchandise from that brand. And so you see it start to bleed out into everyday wear that people have. And Champion that really just wanted to make quality sportswear is now an iconic pop culture brand. So throughout the mid 80s to 90s, it was actually very common to see girls and guys of all ages wearing champion sweatshirts over a turtleneck or over jeans. They're always like two or three sizes too big. You see so many teenage girls wearing clothes like that. Yeah, yeah. Everything was really like oversized and floppy. Yeah. And they really shifted with ease, really, from being solely athletic wear to casual and even leisure wear. And this is really how you build a mega brand. This is the template to follow if you want to build a mega brand. But as we know, fashion is super fickle and sports apparel was becoming increasingly competitive. So this is where we enter the phase that we can call the fall of champion. In late 90s to early 2000s, the divisions between sports stars and pop culture icons started to break down. And so did the division in fashion between the two. The NBA, led by stars like Allen Iverson, was moving to an edgier hip-hop type feel. And Champion, the performance apparel brand of the 80s and 90s, started to look dated in comparison. This is very similar to what we discussed in the Converse episode. And similar time frame. It's the same pressures that are happening. Yeah. They were still the official brand of the NBA, but at the late 90s and the early 2000s, the NBA itself was going through an identity crisis. The more straight-laced league was going through an image shakeup. Players were starting to show up with tattoos and uniforms and how they were worn started to shift. Champion, the iconic brand of the 27 NBA teams now started to look like your dad's brand. Hey, that's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, your dad's brand, more in the past than looking into the future. And when I just say that, I also just think of Old Spice, right? Because that's also what happened to them. Yep. So the market for athletic wear was starting to fragment. So you start to see these different niches and kind of sub-markets were starting to form. Mm -hmm. And Champion's ubiquitous popularity started to become a negative instead of a positive. 
the brand once known for serious performance was now on the discount rack at stores like Walmart and Target. It kind of became known as bland mm-hmm. and just not exciting or innovative or with the times anymore. And so because new competitors were emerging, catering to these more niche clientele, the decline just accelerated very quickly. And it wasn't just companies like Nike and Adidas that had this really aggressive kind of swagger about them and very good marketing and advertising combined with excellent products. But then later you have companies like Under Armour and Lululemon and all these kind of athleisure companies starting to pop up. And the entire landscape of sports apparel just completely shifts and fractures. And these companies start providing both high performance and leisure athletic wear. They basically like married the active wear and the sportswear category. Yes. But true to the Knickerbocker Knitting Company's roots, Champion continued to provide simple sweatshirts and their patented breathable mesh that we talked about. And in 2001, Notre Dame signed a five-year exclusive agreement with Adidas, which ended the partnership with Champion with University that spanned over 50 years. That's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. You know, and Champion didn't just lose favor with sports fans. More importantly, they were losing the battle for cool. And, And that's really what it comes down to is because they weren't competing in this new style game that was coming out. Yeah. Very similar to what Converse did. They stuck with the same style. And as there's so many more options for fashionable clothing, they just couldn't keep up. So Piper McDougall, who writes for Fashion Magazine, said in 2019, quote, I found myself walking around the Halifax shopping center with my partner when he pointed towards a hoodie from the sportswear brand Champion hanging on a rack at Foot Locker, the price just south of $100. Laughing, he told me a story about how he used to fold over the tops of his white Champion logo socks to make the signature C logo invisible. At his elementary school in the early 2000s, kids could be bullied on the playground for wearing the outdated athleisure brand, and he feared if people found out he was sporting the brand, it would make him look cheap or uncool. So this thing that was so cool and everybody loved was now not only not cool and not stylish, but it was like embarrassing to be seen in champion. Just the look and feel looked old. It was out of style. And people just kind of generally became embarrassed to wear it. So Champion became Russell. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They went down a few pegs. Yeah, that's the thing with fashion. It's so fickle, right? It can turn on a dime. As fast as you're in, you're out. Yeah, yeah. So this is a really great point for us to start talking about the comeback, right? So enter part two, and let's call it the resurgence. So from early 2000s on about 2017, Champion was completely out of fashion. Champion's self-space was being replaced by brands like Under Armour and Nike and all the other ones we've covered today. And then unexpectedly in 2017, just as quickly as Champion had fallen off the map, it just re-emerged. Out of the blue from nowhere, Champion was cool again. And Champion saw 36% 
growth from 2017 to 2018. And they expect another 30% growth in 2019. And they weigh toward an estimate of $2 billion in sales in 2022. Crazy, right? Now, you might say, hang on a minute. You guys just skipped the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole comeback piece. What, <laughs> what happened? And you're right. I mean, usually we would tell a story about a brand's comeback and, and how it played out. And it's usually that they were sold or that they slowly rebuilt. But from a consumer's perspective, Champion just reemerged, seemingly completely out of the blue. One day they were on the scrap heap and the next day they were on the Kardashians. And it's really seemed really fast. So what happened? I mean, what are the reasons for Champion to surge in popularity again? Well, there were a number of factors that came together all at the same time. You have this perfect storm, so to speak, of nostalgia, making this huge comeback. And you see them really starting to pay attention to style and getting on top of the influencer marketing game through collaborations with a variety of companies and artists, etc. And all of those collaborations coalesced into the success that they had and were able to drive that success very quickly. So it seems like it's all about popular opinions, these trends that they just kind of shifted overnight. But to the people that were really watching this closely, no brand was better positioned to reemerge than Champion. Because in the early 2000s, nostalgia marketing was really starting to pick up steam, but hadn't really gotten yet to what we see now where the nostalgia brands are everything. And so millennials in particular have really driven this nostalgia comeback because of these really strong emotional ties and resonance to older products, the products of their youth. And with the realities of climate change and social media and politics and all of the different things going on, younger consumers have developed this really strong attachment to nostalgia, like we've talked about many times on the podcast. Yeah. And Champion was a brand with unlimited amounts of nostalgia to go around an amazing history of innovation and relevance. And a good product. Do you know what I mean? Their perception about yes. the brand changed. Their product didn't change. It's not like... Dominoes, remember that when we unpacked the whole Domino's comeback, their fail yep. was when they started cutting back on their ingredients across the board. They made their tomato sauce 5% more water and then saved X amount, of, you know? So they actually like <laughs> yeah. chipped away at their own products. But here, nothing happened to champion the actual physical product. It was the perception of the brand that switched. And I think only then nostalgia marketing or a nostalgia comeback could be successful if the product is still intact and it's still a good product that initially picked up steam. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the technologies that they invented both for sweaters and hoodies, as well as athletic jerseys are still the top technologies used today. The core was there they were missing the stylistic relevance, but not necessarily the product relevance. The products mm -hmm. were really good. They just didn't match the current style appetites of the time. So according to time.com, quote, Champion is a benefactor of three swirling style trends that converged to create a teen and millennial fashion craze. 
Logo apparel is in vogue. Throwback gear has returned. And streetwear, the casual style derived from skateboard and sports culture, is having a moment. Mm. But, you know, it's very easy to say that, you know, this was a happy accident. Kind of what happened to the Paps Blue Ribbon comeback, you know, where they tapped into this vein of the whole hipster thing. And you can look back and you can say they did it really well, but it was at the right time at the right place. Where here, I think it's couldn't be further from the truth that this wasn't a happy accident. The champion marketing team not only saw it coming, they made it happen. And when it did, they were really ready for it. Susan Henniker, Champions North American president, told Time Magazine, quote, we're able to capture millennials that remember wearing it in gyms, we're able to capture their parents and generations ahead of them because they have a long history of the brand. And that's not by chance, right? Yeah, and customers aren't really the only ones demonstrating loyalty to Champion out of nostalgia. Manny Martinez, who started working at Champion in 2005 as an intern and now works as one of their global ambassadors, says... Quote, my whole thing was to take it from an urban phenomenon to pop culture, because that's what I always believed the brand was. That's what it meant to me as a kid. And that was my mission. So you're right. This was a very calculated move to return the brand to cultural relevance in addition to product quality. Yeah. Those two things kind of have to go hand in hand. You have to have a quality product that also resonates culturally with your target audience. So the factors that the champion team used to rebirth their brand included really diversifying within the market, allowing it to become a kind of newly recognized brand amongst this newer target audience of younger people. Champion reacquired its license in Europe as it saw strong growth in both Europe and Asia. They had actually sold their license and there was another company that was manufacturing products with the Champion logo. The quality was much lower. Consistency wasn't there. And they said, we need to bring this all back. It's like Marvel that licensed their own products out. We see that a lot, right? When companies struggle, it seems to be like a thing that they do. They license their stuff out to different regions that they not don't have a big presence. And then when they start picking up steam again, they've got to go back and buy their own license back. <laughs> We've seen that so many times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're basically like taking out a second mortgage on their, <laughs> exactly. on their business, you know? Yeah. So Champion <laughs> is available to all types of consumers. And this is what I find extremely interesting. Some people pay upwards of $90 for a Champion hoodie at a store like Urban Art Theaters or even Target for that matter, or others would buy a limited edition Champion item on a luxury consignment shop website like The Real Real, when I looked at it this morning, they can range up to like $400 for the exact same thing that you would buy at Urban Outfitters, but it's a limited edition. So think of that range, right? But those who can't or don't want to spend that much for a champion hoodie can go to Walmart and buy the same thing for 25 bucks. It's crazy. I mean, how many luxury brands do you know of that can have that kind of crosstalk across all of the different target audiences. I mean, it's like if Louis Vuitton or Chanel was all of a sudden in Walmart. Yeah, but why would you put your daughter in Walmart? <laughs> Chad's little girl's name Chanel, so they couldn't resist. No, I can't think of any other brands. You know, and for those who don't mind 
sifting long and go to some grimy thrift stores, you could pick up a champion hoodie for a couple of bucks. You know, not everybody can spend $300 on a hoodie, but regardless of whether one person spends $300 or another spends $25, they are both still wearing the same product, Champion. To your point, no brands that I can think of that comes to mind, when you think of companies that sell quality products that cater to every age, gender, and size, to the high and into the low ends of the shops. It's super smart mm. because you're, in our term, target audience just quadrupled because you've got so many more customers that can actually buy your products. Right. And that's a very, very difficult feat to pull off because you run the risk of being all things to everyone and really muddling yeah. your brand identity, yeah. right? Because what drove the comeback in great length was that the brand was now being associated with style again. It was being associated with pop icons, yeah. right? And there's a certain kind of luxurious, aspirational component to that, where typically brands in that category tap into the mass affluent type of persona versus the Walmart crowd. But that came through a very targeted and purposeful strategy. So Susan Heineke credits the surge in Champion's popularity to increased investment in social media channels. In 2016, Champion had 200,000 Instagram followers. Today, they have 5.8 million followers on Instagram. And she says that she even takes the kind of masochistic step of personally reading through all the comments to gauge her followers' thoughts. She's very in touch with her followers and the pulse of the landscape of who the champion audiences are and who each of those sub audiences are. And so many times when you see a celebrity or influencer wearing champion on social media, they're not actually being paid to do it. Champion was able to do this grassroots type of campaign where they would gift products to people and they would work with celebrities or artists to do collaborations. Mm -hmm. And through that, there were these unpaid opportunities that encouraged these pop icons and celebrities to wear the clothes, which then eventually find their way, of course, onto social media. And so now you start to see people like the Kardashians, Justin Bieber, Rihanna, Chance the Rapper, who really start to make the brand unlame yeah. and super popular again. Yeah, and they really embrace collaboration. You know, some of the champions collaborators include Keith, Supreme, Susan Alexandra. Collaborations has exposed Champion to an entirely new segment of shoppers, including youth markets and luxury retailers, that whole continuum we just talked about. Champions collaborations appeared on the real real alongside $60,000 handbags. $45,000 Tiffany & Co. diamond bracelets or $3,000 Red Soul Christian Louboutin pumps. According to Jeff Kachvalue, director of a street fashion site, Heist Nobiety, collaborations with streetwear label Supreme, Off-White and Keith helped Champion gain access to some of the coolest brands on the planet. And he went on to say, the high and low of fashion can work together. Very innovative. I'm not in fashion, so... I understand that I don't understand this, but that's not common sense for me, that the high and the low of fashion can work together in the way that it does here. It's really interesting. You typically think of runway fashion, 
as being high fashion and something that's highly impractical and unattainable yes completely out of the price range and unattainable even from the perspective of when do you wear it where would you ever wear runway fashions because they're so outlandish oftentimes right the high fashion stuff your rate soils christian louboutin pumps <laughs> when you drop off your child at a kindergarten that's right okay so let's let's summarize what we've learned from this well i think first as we've talked about many times, nostalgia is very powerful, but it can't just be a happenstance that you get lucky. You have to understand how to harness it. You have to capitalize on nostalgia yeah. at the right time, in the right ways, with the right people. And a lot of brands could have told this story about themselves, but they didn't because they weren't ready or didn't see the opportunity or didn't understand how to leverage nostalgia in a new way mm. that's now newly relevant to the up and coming generations, as well as the older generations that have a lot of familiarity and love for the brand, but still need it to be relevant in their current lives in the current day and age. Yeah. So the old adage, chance favors the prepared mind yeah. is true here. Like the champion team was ready. And when the opportunity came, they struck while the iron was hot. Yeah. And then I think the second thing is being everywhere is a double-edged sword. Champions' presence at discount stores hurt them in the 90s. But when combined with high fashion and hip-hop collaboration in the 2000s, it is seen as a positive thing. And here's another adage, double-edged sword to mean something that can either be good or bad, depending on whether you know how to use it. Champion knew how to use it. Like to your point, they were ready for it. They turned potential negatives into positives by using the authenticity of their legacy to shape the narrative, which is just well played. That's a great point, which leads me to, I think, the third thing, which is, as you speak about legacy, it's not enough to be a heritage brand. You have to know how that heritage applies to today and tomorrow and shift that from something about the past. Yeah. For example, the CMO of Converse saying that if you remind people that you're 100 years old, they're just going to think that you're old and out of date. You have to focus on what that means for the future of the brand and not the past. So the importance of understanding the role of style and cultural ebbs and flows in design is extremely important. And being able to adapt your products and then communicate those adaptations in a customer-friendly and culturally relevant way is how you then translate that to your target audience yeah. so that they can feel the power of the right type of endorsements to drive the perceptions that you want to drive with your brand. Yeah. And Champion did all those things, all three of those things. And the result was that from the outside, if you just look at it, their comeback was instant or inevitable. When in reality, it was a result of really good planning, years of excellence, a really strong, good product and hard work. Want to strategize a comeback? There's your blueprint. <laughs> it's literally what you need to do. Right. Look at those three <laughs> things, just combine them together, and then very few things can actually go wrong. But as we know, it is not that simple, and it is really, really hard to shift a legacy brand to something that's relevant today. Absolutely.
All right. Hey, guys, just as a reminder, if there's any specific stories you want us to dive into, leave them in the comments. We have picked up a few interesting stories through there in the past. So please feel free to steer us into a story that you want us to unpack. Cool. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.